Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Christine Miller. Christine is a professor of design management at Savannah School of Art and Design, often known as SCAD, previous uh, at Illinois Institute of Technology. Also a principle of ethnographic inquiry, which, you know, we can just briefly talk about that you use for the various book um, publications that you're involved in. And you are previously, you had wrote the, the, the author of Design Plus Anthropology, Converging Pathways in Anthropology and Design, which is a classic text in the design anthropology space. And um, I, I expect we're going to have an interesting story today because you, Christine, you had started uh, in fine and studio art, which sort of makes sense of where you've landed, but it also must make for an interesting story of how you came into anthropology. And so would you maybe start by telling us all how that happened? Sure. Um, and thanks for uh, the interview today. Appreciate that. Uh, the how I got to anthropology. Okay. Well, I've always been interested in people and cultures. And early on, I was very interested in um, people and cultures in Japan. Uh, started with an interest in art, uh, the art of Japan, um, both the visual arts and the uh, literature. And I... Um, Wow, it is a long story. I'm trying to figure out how can I start this. Okay, so after um, my first two years of um, college, which was at a small Midwestern land-grant college called Blackburn, which was really an amazing place uh, for two years, it was kind of like a Hogwarts. But um, after two years, I realized that it's very limited in scope. I mean, we were kind of in the middle of a cornfield in central Illinois, and I really wanted more of a um, university setting rather than a small college. So I ended up um, at the University of California at Irvine, and that's where I finished my undergraduate degree in studio art. And I was always more interested in the cerebral side of art and um you know that rather than the craft side um the craft side was interesting but i was more interested in uh artists like marcel duchamp he was my like go to i really admired his work uh which was really more about um thinking than it was about the craft of of painting or sculpting um, so, uh, after, was so I finished my undergraduate degree at UC Irvine, which is a great school. And then, um, I, uh, worked, uh, for about 10 years before I went back for a master's degree in U.S. Japan relations. And, uh, you know, the Japan is the red thread there. Um, and my, at that point, my interest was really in the, um, um, multiple, multidimensional relationship between Japan and the United States, particularly business and, um, political ties. Um, and a very, you know, a long history of, um, uh, a long relationship between the U.S. and Japan. And I was able to, uh, kind of slip into the uh, business relationships 
between U.S. and Japan at the time. Japan was a, you know, world-class um, business kind of juggernaut at that time. Um, but that did not last. And um, I was able to finish my degree at um, uh, Goddard College, as a matter of fact. And Goddard, I understand, is no longer existing as a school, which I think is really sad. But it was a progressive institution that had a very unusual uh, format. Um, we were uh, on campus for two weeks, and then everybody, or most people, left campus and went off and did their work and lived their lives and, you know, came back again the following semester. So um, I actually spent a semester in Japan and um, was uh, just um, totally overwhelmed and enamored and fascinated and uh, was quite an experience, life-changing experience. So I came back um, after uh, that quarter, after that semester, I wrote my thesis and I um, graduated, moved on uh, to uh, be involved in business. And I uh, started working as a consultant um, initially, uh, but very quickly went to work for the Small Business Development Center. And um, I used my experience in international business, which was more about guiding companies into uh, how they could do, uh, how they could get involved in international business um, at the Small Business Development Center at the University of Central Florida. So I did that for several years, and then I went to work for a uh, tech company, actually, that was uh, located just outside of Orlando, and I worked with them uh, for a couple years in the uh, in uh, developing uh, some international ties. Uh, they were a young company, a startup, basically, and of course, you know, they had to get involved in the international uh, scene, the global scene. And so uh, from there, I'm trying to think, where did I go to work? I've missed a couple places, but mostly I've been working um, with people in some sort of teaching capacity, right? And trying to, um, I'm, I'm looking for the right word, guidance, I guess, guide them into areas where they were not familiar, like where they wanted to go, but did not know how to get there. Uh, that was very much my role at um, the Small Business Development Center, like introducing like international business. How do we how how do, how can you get there? How can you create an international presence for your company? And this was back in the late 80s and early 90s. So a lot has changed since then. Um, so after the Small Business Development Center and the work that I did with um, uh, the computer company they have, they were developing something called a caching ca caching um, technology which has long since you know been eclipsed by other things um, but I always had an interest in working in business but I want but scholarship was always important to me so um, I uh, went from the uh, and I wish I had my my resume in front of me. It would be a lot easier to track this. Because after uh, the University of Central Florida, I um, wanted to get back into um, a doctoral program. I went to work for uh, another company. It was um, during the time of the Great Consolidation. So this company had been part of what was known as Western Development Labs. They were located out in California. Uh, they were actually connected in some ways to Ford, but they were the defense arm of um, Ford at that time. I believe it was they were connected to Ford. And um, I was able to get hired in the um, program office of an organization that was focused on uh, the distributed information technology uh, grant that the government put out. So um, Western Development Labs, as a defense contractor, uh, they 
survived in great part by doing government programs, by winning government programs, by uh, going after proposals and getting these programs. It was all advanced technology. So this was about distributed um, technology, distributed uh, computing, right? At a time when that really didn't exist. So this was taking different sites and integrating them so that they could play together, basically. And um, I spent uh, two years there and learned a lot. Um, I was in, basically it was, it was a supporting program management. Um, it was an administration, administrative function. Um, I was also the security officer. Uh, because some of the work that we did was uh, classified. And, you know, again, it's like thinking back on this career, it's like, how did these things come together? But they did in the way that they do in life. And so um, two years there working with uh, DPT, that program, and the company was um, bought um, and we, became, you know, our program was, was, um, brought into a larger organization that was running multiple programs at the time. Um, and I spent several years there um, supporting program work, basically. So from there, I knew I wanted to go back and um, I had my master's from Goddard, but I knew I wanted to go back and get a graduate degree, like an advanced graduate degree. I knew I wanted a, a PhD. And so um, I was married at the time. I went uh, with my husband. We relocated to um, the Western Michigan, to the Detroit area, uh, Oakland County. Um, so while we, when we got up there, I uh, started um, the PhD program at Wayne State. And it was, as I mentioned, um, a interdisciplinary PhD program, which they no longer have. Um, I think I was the last person to graduate from that program. Um, I had an accumulation of uh, some outrageous number of course hours because I didn't have a background in anthropology, but I knew I wanted to do anthropology. I looked at the program uh, that was available in um business anthropology. They didn't, I think they called it business and industrial anthropology. And, and that was when um, Meta Baba was the chair of the anthropology department. And that was, I believe, the first business anthropology program in the country, in this country, in the U.S. Um, so I uh, was able to talk um, a committee into supporting me in getting this interdisciplinary PhD. I took many hours of anthropology but, you know, it was because I was coming into anthropology without an undergraduate or master's degree, it was um, like I had to scramble to get there. But I loved it. I, I just loved anthropology. But I was interested in working in business. I didn't want to do traditional anthropology. I wanted to be in applied. And um, so it took me, oh, my gosh, almost 10 years to finish that degree because I was teaching at Wayne State at the time. Um, and um, I did my uh, dissertation research at Visteon, which was an offshoot of Ford. I worked with um, the group that was uh, doing um, innovation. It was the innovation group uh, within Visteon. Visteon had been part of Ford, but they were spun off, uh, like many of the um, component divisions of automotive manufacturers. Um, and that's rather a story in itself, but it was um, the automotive companies found that they, well, I'll use Ford as an example, that the components divisions really were um, curating um, outside work and bringing in outsiders to do the innovation work within the company. And uh, they uh, the companies decided, well, you know, this isn't really giving us what we want. And so we're going to launch these as independent companies and good luck. Um, I think it was more a matter of kicking them to the curb for Vision. Uh, and I believe that they're still around, but um, it was 
it was a wild ride. I mean, here they were part of a corporate entity, Ford. They were supported by this giant organization and, um, you know, with support, uh, they were launched uh, and they were going to be a com- uh, their own company and they were going to provide uh, components to anybody in the automotive industry. But it was interesting because their relationship was with Ford primarily. And so they scrambled to find people that knew how to um, work with other companies like Mazda, like GM, like, you know, uh, Toyota and all the other automotive companies that were out there. So uh, that was an interesting uh, two years. Um, I was actually embedded with that organization, with Vision for about 18 months and um, did my research within that group, interviewed lots of people, uh, over 50 people there, and uh, basically watched them transition from a part of Ford to an independent entity in their own building um, as a uh, standalone organization. They didn't make it. I mean, they, they did not succeed in the way that they had intended. Brilliant people, though. I mean, they really knew the automotive industry very well. Um, but it was a stretch for them to, like, really be successful as an independent organization. So um, from there, I finished my dissertation. Um, I did a project with um, Krista Metcalf at uh, Motorola. We did a study of sharing between families and close friends at a time when smartphones were just becoming a thing. Um, the razor was just becoming a thing. And um, as that, that was at the end while I was writing my dissertation. I took some time off to uh, finish my dissertation about nine months. And right as I was finishing my dissertation, I started interviewing for full-time positions and I came across um, a opening at um, SCAD, and my daughter had gone to SCAD. She'd finished her undergrad in um, industrial design there, and so I knew some of the faculty. So I um, applied for that position. Um, I went to uh, interview. Um, they were they had never had a PhD in that department, and so they didn't know what they were going to get, but they knew they wanted, they, they loved the fact that they could say they had an anthropologist on the, you know, in the department. So I was like, all right, yes, I'm an anthropologist. Um, now I'm going to be a design anthropologist. So uh, for seven years, I worked at SCAD and built, uh, along with Bob Fee and other faculty members, uh, their design management uh, program. Uh, we started uh, with five students, three of well, it was about five students, and grew the uh, the program to 60 on ground and 60 online students. So when I left after seven years, we had roughly 120 pro, uh, students in the program. And it was um, really just fantastic working with these students who are coming from all different um, fields prior to joining our program. Um, they weren't all designers, um, and it was, you know, interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary. And that was, that's my thing. I love working in those fields which are transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, moving from interdisciplinary to transdisciplinary. So the challenge of um, being um, an anthropologist and teaching, again, really teaching in design, making anthropology, integrating it into a design field. Like it became human-centered design. This was at a time when design was moving from being object-centered to being human-centered. And now we're moving from human-centered to planet-centered. So, I mean, there've just been so many transitions and being able to find, you know, it's like water, right? Finding its way. Um, that's been my career is working in these emerging areas where things are 
not clear, not known, bleeding edge, and bringing people into it. You know, and and I have a love hate relationship with technology. Honestly, I don't think it's that I have a love hate relationship with technology. I I, I just am aware of the fact that you know technology is like a thing, right? It's an artifact. And then it's used. And it's the way that it's used that um, I really have a stake in that. I want to see it used for good, but how do we define good? And whose good is this? So that's kind of what I do. I teach now again in design management. Um, I'm actually uh, coming back into a program that's been, um, I want to say run, I guess, uh, by people who are from a practice background. And so we're at the point where we need to revamp our program and update it. And we have to bring it to, you know, current times to 2022 and integrate technology where technology makes sense. But it's there. I mean, we're going through this digital transformation and our program has to transform as well. So that's kind of it, Matt. Yeah, well, that's a lot. Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so let me uh, let me go back and try to pick off a few things. There's many interesting things there, but it's it's quite the journey. And um, so, you know, I first I find it interesting that you were sort of advising on, you know, international business, especially before having you know, the anthropology degree. Now I appreciate, you know, the, the, the sort of your previous master's degree likely helped you move in that direction, but nonetheless, um, you know, it is still interesting that you found yourself in that space and then later got essentially a business anthropology degree. And so I guess my first question would be when you were doing that work in Florida and then later after having or going through the anthropology program and maybe reflecting on your earlier work, is there anything that you sort of now realize about what you were doing then that, you know, you, you've come to learn as a result of your anthropology studies that you maybe would do different or? Yeah. Um, I think that the big lesson, um, or yeah, I think it's a big lesson was that even though it's business, right? People are doing business. When you're when you're a company that's doing business domestically and you want to move into the international market. At that time it was international. I mean the idea of things being global was a, something people really weren't focused on. It was more doing international business. It's not business as you know it. It's not business as you know it. I mean, I, I mean, business is done differently, even, you know, and trying to find ways to do business where uh, you can still be profitable, right? You have not only the parts of business that you know and the parts of business that are common, uh, regardless of where it's being done, whether it's Japan or Mexico or Europe you're still ha going to have to learn a whole other approach to business based on the culture and the values that are dominant in that culture. I mean, you know, I really didn't know at that time about collective cultures versus individual cultures. I mean, that was just, that's kind of, maybe that's all I knew, right? So anthropology brought me to this place where, there was this incredible rich archive of work that had been done on such a micro level. And it provided a lens that would have been useful, but almost, you know, how do you adjust that lens? Right. It, it, it's a challenge. Now you, you move on and you you get this business anthropology degree. So when you were studying, when you're doing your dissertation research, you you mentioned that the company essentially didn't make it. Um, but I'm curious, were you studying the innovation process there more so or the organizational culture or a little bit of both? 
A little bit of both. Right. So um, I was studying the form, how the organization as a standalone organization, and I think that they have survived in some form, but it wasn't in the way that they intended. They were actually purchased by a, um, I guess it was an equity fund, right? So they were taken over and, um, you know, the, the intention was to try to make them profitable. But um, it was the innovation process and how it was formalized within that organization, right? So how do you take innovation and put it into a pipeline? How does the innovation process work in an organization so that it's shepherded? through an organization and aligned with a corporate strategy. I mean, people have good ideas all the time, right? But do those ideas actually align with where the organization wants to go at this point in time, right? So there were a lot of good ideas that people had that have since been actualized in the world. At the time, it, they were either too soon or they didn't, they couldn't be supported um, within the organization because of funding, funds available, um, and and you know people needed to learn how to take those ideas and make them real. I mean, to to actually make them real. I mean, when you ask an engineer to think creatively. In a, in a way that can be turned into a product that would be successful in the marketplace, that that takes time. And and we there were some really interesting experiments. Like um, and and I thought that that was excellent. I mean that you know people realize okay if we're going to do this innovation thing uh, we're going to have to let people experiment and fail, right? And so to send engineers out in the field to do what basically we now call design research and have them come back after talking with people and doing drive-alongs to come back and and with an idea that they wanted to make an in-vehicle coffee maker because people said they wanted hot coffee. They wanted their coffee to be hot in the car. No, we're not going to make an in-car coffee maker. It's brilliant. It was designed. I'm sure it could have been manufactured. There was a prototype. But but no, <laughs> we're not going to make an in-car coffee maker. We're not going to use curry cups in the car. So, I mean, it was those, it was, you know, the amazing opportunity to witness that Piece, that kind of snapshot in time as people were figuring out how are we going to do this? I, I mean, that's kind of been the story of my career. It's like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to take our little domestic company and make connections in, in, in a company uh, with a group of people on the other side of the world um, who seem to be interested in our product how do we figure out how to sell it to them? How to manage that transaction and how to maintain a relationship with them? It's about people, right? It's about people. So it sounds like they were struggling not just you know creating sort of a sustainable stream of innovations, but also you know in in relations and potentially you could even maybe argue branding and just sort of messaging and how they're communicating value. So it seems like after they got spun out, you know, there seems to be a, maybe a few organizational issues that they that they needed to work out, and not just the innovation piece, which you oh, know, is absolutely perfectly yeah. reasonable to to expect. Right. Um, but you said something about the innovation piece that's interesting that I think also maybe relates to you know some of the work you might do at SCAD, and um, you know, you said something like you know people were coming up with ideas that weren't aligning with strategy. And so that sort of raises the question of of what drives strategy today. 
or or what should be maybe i i would frame it that way of course in the past it was being driven out of like you know your more traditional sort of business roles um and so you know this might be jumping very far ahead into the conversation in some sense but how do you you know where do you stand on business strategy and and how much should the design process play in that in your perspective well the design process definitely has a role and that's where design management is situated. The business processes, well, let's back up a little bit. Design management is really about making design strategic and not tactical. So an example is um, in my classes, students work in teams and they they do projects, right? Um, and I'll use the example from my current quarter um, students. Um, and, and when I teach research, basically teach uh, design research and teach the research process, there, there is a, a number of steps that students have to learn to go through. I mean, because it is a process and, and it's an iterative process, but it is definitely a process. And, and so they start with this kind of big idea, right? They identify a problem, typically. I mean, sometimes they can identify an opportunity or sometimes they identify a problem and an opportunity. And then they have to, to figure out what's going on in that landscape competitively. You know, what are the, um, who's already out there and what, what are they doing? So, for example, one of the one of the projects that we are we've just completed was on transparency, bringing transparency to the fast fashion market, the fast fashion industry, and you know, Gen X, Gen Z, younger people, I will say, without trying to put too fine a point on it, everybody really is interested in transparency. They want to know that the products that they're buying, where they come from, who's making them, where is the raw material sourced, how are um, you know people being treated when they're working in the uh, supply chain? You know, are people being treated well? Um, and that's happened happening in the fashion industry, but there's a lot uh, or there's a lack of transparency. Right. So it's the it's gone way beyond organic or sustainable. And how how do you capture or how does a company capture its supply chain and show and be transparent about where its products are coming from? So that was the challenge that this team took on. And they came up at the end, you know, it, it's always some what of an imitation in a way, um, but they came up with a third-party certification. And how does that? How do we make that third that idea for a third-party certification? How do we make that actually happen in the world? I mean, we have leads, we have examples, but how do they actually make that real? Now, you use the design process to get to this final concept, right? They've developed, you know, a concept catalog, you know, three to five different ideas. They come up with this one that they want to pursue. They prototype it. Now, what do we do with this? How do we make this real? And that's basically what happens at, at um, you know, on an, an organizational level, level. But from a design management perspective, the idea then has to get uh, get elevated to the strategic level. How do you as an organization end up a, making this a part of the strategy? Like we realize based on our research, quantitative and qualitative, that this is what people want, right? That the people, our customers, these people who are, you know, buying our clothes, they want transparency. They don't want greenwashing. They could, they're smart. They figured that out. They don't want that. It's not enough. How do we bring this to a strategic level and fund it and make it happen? 
Now, most companies will decide they don't want to do that internally, right? That's not our core business. So where can we go? And that's where this third-party certification comes in, that it could serve an industry and not a company. But how how do you elevate these ideas to a strategic level? And that's the work of design management. And so we'll come back to that in just a second, but I want to just jump back to your timeline because, so you, you know, you go to Wayne State, you're studying business anthropology, academically speaking, you're doing your, your dissertation work, you know, in the innovation space and you end up at SCAD. And so now all of a sudden uh, you more, at least maybe I'll say more formally take on this interest in design anthropology. Um, not sure if you were articulating at that as that at all before that, but okay. So you're shaking your head. No. So, so what, um, you know, how did you discover that? And what was the trigger for you to start connecting the pieces of design and business management? And, you know, where did that, did you learn about it at SCAD or was it just, you know, at that time, what was happening in the sort of across the globe? It was really what was coming out of, um, Northern Europe and, you know, the, um, and I don't have the book in front of me, but it was the the design anthropology book, edited collection. I mean, that became, that was it. Once I found that, um, and I think it was a couple of years after it was published, I'm like, you know, it's like, I couldn't believe it. I had, I was so head down and working that I didn't even see it for a, for a couple of years. That was it. It's like, this is where I'm working. This is where, this is my space. And uh, just curious, did you also like know of the Design Management Institute at that time or? Yes, I did. Yeah. And I never, I didn't publish anything there, um, but I was aware of it. Thomas Lockwood was the um, director at that time. Um, Yes, the Design Management Institute. And um, I was, you know, at every AAA and every SFAA. Um, because I really wanted to keep my foot in anthropology. I wanted to stay in that world, but you know, it, it was also business and it was also design and design anthropology just made, was perfect. And I agree with you there. You know, I, I often don't share my story on the podcast so much, but you know, I had come from a business degree. Like I had got my master's in, in my MBA, right? And, and I was getting interested in the Design Management Institute work. And there were some Harvard Business Review articles that were starting to pop up in our space. And that's those things combined with a few other things is ultimately what led me in the direction of anthropology. And I went to UNT, you know, and studied with Susan Squires and Christina Wilson. And so you can see how that all comes together. And so, um, you know, to me, it also is a natural fit and applying, you know, sort of the design process to, you know, many things. And I think what, what people may, might get confused on though, and when we're having this conversation or what you, I think I hear often is there seems to still be a focus on, you know, on the, the visual, on the aesthetic, right? I think many people, when they hear the word design, they go to that. So would you mind just sharing with people sort of your perspective of, of design broadly, but also design anthropology and, you know, how that fits into this landscape? Yeah. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, I published a book in 2018, uh, part of, uh, Tim Malphite's, um, business anthropology series, um, with Taylor and Francis. And I wanted to, in, at that point, I wanted to trace like the history of anthropology and design and to understand like, how is it that these two fields ended up in this convergence? It was no marriage. There was no marriage. There was no dating. This was like a purely practical convergence. Uh, design had been object focused. It was all object focused. And, you know, when I started at SCAD, the industrial design department, it was like pink foam models and they were designing things, right? They were designing things and, and the uh, craft of being able to use, you know, software programs like Rhino and, you know, the renderings, right? And it was object. It was an object. And, and so we saw, you know, in the catalog at that time, there were objects, no people just objects. It was not the object in use. And so I entered that 
world, right? I entered design at the time when, at least at SCAD, they were, they wanted to bring the idea of the object in use. And that's where, that's why they saw anthropology as being valuable. They didn't know how to use it. Like a lot of firms, you know, back in, and, and that, at that time, back in, um, well, this was like, 20, 2007, 2008, and companies had already started, you know, bringing anthropologists in to try to make that connection. They couldn't even really articulate or they weren't doing it very well, what it was that they wanted anthropologists to do, right? Or what are they, you know, what, 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 what are they here for? But, but in, and in design, it was about the object in use and anthropology was perfect for that. It was perfect. And so that's where the idea of human-centered design really began to take shape um, at SCAD. You know, it was already taking shape around, you know, around the world. But they did not know how to articulate that other than like ergonomics, right, and affordances, like how people sit in chairs or how they use desks or how they would hold a mouse, Right. They knew the ergonomic physical side, but they didn't understand the rest. Right. And so that's how that's where I entered the field. And so I was trying to figure it out myself. What from anthropology can I bring to design that will help them make that connection of the object in use and not just the object that you've designed and you want to throw out there? But how do you design for people? How do you design for people? Not just what you think is cool, but how do you design for people? Which goes back to my experience at Vistion was how do you design for a market? Not just what you think is cool, but how do you design for what people are going to buy? What companies are going to buy? Because they weren't selling to, you know, end users. They weren't selling to people who were buying the cars. They were selling to OEMs, to you know, original equipment manufacturers who are going to fit this thing into a vehicle. Very complex. So complexity theory was very much something I was interested in. So in the book, you know, in in the first couple chapters after like the introduction, you know, you kind of trace the history of anthropology, design, start to sort of operationalize what design anthropology looks like. And of course, you know, at that time, I mean, arguably, even to today, there are some competing views on what it is and where its place is. And maybe to not get bogged down too much on its place, well, maybe we could just touch on that quickly. Like, do you see it as its own distinct discipline, or do you view it as sort of a subfield of business anthropology? Wow, yeah. Do you know, I don't even know how to answer that question. I mean, it is... Um treated in the U.S. as a part of business anthropology. I think it exists more as an independent field in Europe. I think that we, you know, there are two different perspectives on this. Um, I see design anthropology as one of many, you know, one of many trajectories um, that are out there trying to figure out how to make sense of what is happening, you know, in, in business and organizations and in society. And yeah, that that's, I'm, I'm still figuring that out. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I know it is why Janessa and I started this book is that, it it's not design anthropology anymore. I think it's design and plus anthropology. I don't see this as something, I see it as something that's fluid. Just for the sake of the listeners, you're now talking about actually your forthcoming book, which is on design, you know, on, on the topics of design and anthropology and, and how they relate. And, um, you know, you can share more about that if you wish, but that's probably sometime maybe late year, early next year, and you'll be looking, be working with a number of, my understanding, with a number of practitioners in the space and getting their perspectives on it, some case studies, and really showing how everybody's applying the concepts of design anthropology, design anthropology to sort of tease out, again, is it, or is it one thing? Is it separate? Are they, you know, how are they sort of working together? 
Right. Exactly. And um, I did uh, wrote an article with um, Ken Ryapel. Um, Ken and Julia Gleasing, uh, Julia was on my committee, uh, my dissertation committee, and Ken, her husband, um, is a really amazing statistical wizard. And uh, we did, uh, we wrote an article on, is design anthropology a discipline? Is it, is it a field in itself? And so we established some criteria, um, you know, does it have its own um, journals? Does it run its own conferences? Um, where does it show up in terms of like how much literature is out there on it? And I have to say at the time when we wrote that article, which was probably um, 2020, 2021, it, it's not its own field. It does, it, it did not grow fast enough or maybe it's still growing and we would have to go back and run those numbers again but it's not a standalone field i mean it has a group of practitioners devoted practitioners most of those folks are from uh from europe the uh wendy guns and the thomas otts and you know i I can't remember a lot of the names but it's a very distinctive group but you know i i don't see it as, and I don't know that anything is at this point, unless it was already very well established discipline. I mean, we're in a period of, you know, it's um, splintering, really. Again, in design, there have just been this incredible proliferation. You know, and again, when I started at SCAD, it was industrial design, and then it was design management, and then there was interaction design, and they all existed under the industrial design department. And then it was sustainability, designed for sustainability. And now it's UX. It's it's a proliferation of different design fields. And so something else that comes up in the design anthropology literature is futures. And, you know, that's another topic that has varying perspectives around the world. Um, There's, you know, some people who consider themselves futurists and, you know, some take it a little, maybe to the extreme of saying, you know, they kind of get into predictions, um, which, you know, has it, has it's probably a a fair critique of, there there could be a fair critique of, you know, of that ability. And, um, but so where do you stand on sort of future studies and how do you, are you trying to incorporate that more into what you're doing at SCAD? And like, just, you know, for anybody listening, who's confused by this space because it quite frankly it is still confusing right there i think a lot of people when they we read the literature they're not quite sure what design anthropology is and so would you mind just weighing in on that and how you know how you see that fitting in um yeah i um speculative speculative design is what i see as part of that future that future movement right like how do we anticipate what's coming how can we actually design multiple futures scenarios scenario planning and work towards them so one of the fields that i'm very interested in is transition design and i don't see them specifically as being part of the future movement but they are very good at tying to tying in the past and the present and showing how these things lead to the problems that we're encountering now, the, which we refer to as wicked problems, right? It's just a tangle of um, issues that have come about over time and just manifest in different ways like introducing well introducing technologies like when i worked way back when when i worked for um the dpt program uh or dpt um for the distributed uh technology program i mean we we were just seeing how to animate a battlefield 
at the time. And now we look at where um, the software has gone to so realistic, right? I mean, at that time, they were trying to figure out how do we code for a cloud? What do we make a cloud look like? And I think about that today and how far it's gone, computer-generated um, animation. Um, I'm sure I'm getting lost in this, but tracing the development, the technological side and how it's been, you know, kind of how it enters the world and what happens um, and how the unintended consequences cause multiple problems that we're now trying to unravel. Well, again, I think there's, there's varying disciplines, but, you know, in certainly envisioning those possibilities and trying to play a role in uh, doing good, you know, right, so that we can either maybe correct some of those past ones or prevent some of the future ones. To me, certainly seems like it fits, but it that then raises maybe the next point of I think maybe less confusion and more maybe there's more debate around this. But this goes back to some things you said earlier. You know, so if we're interventionist, which most people in the design anthropology space would say that is a core component of it. You know, what does that mean for, again, kind of as, you know, to use your wording from earlier, who's good, right? And and who gets to really decide on that? And is it, again, just sort of like, a, you know, almost like colonialism in some sense? Uh, we're going around sort of solving the world's problems with our sort of very sort of process-oriented, rational sort of approach to solving these wicked problems. And so it, it, being an interventionist is something that I think many anthropologists still struggle with, and while I guess that's to some degree changing as more have to go into, you know, as many are starting to go into tech as a result of needing jobs because there's so few in academia. And I guess you sort of quickly become acclimated with having to solve problems, but that is still historically been an issue. So, you know, how do you, how do you remedy that in your own mind, especially when teaching the next generation, um, you know, how do you help them figure out who's good it is and how that we do the right thing in that space? Yeah, that's um, very much a part of what I'm what I do. Um, SCAD is a very um, it's a professional school, and so they're training people to go out into industry and to work there uh, and contribute to corporate profitability. So what I attempt to do what I try to do uh, in especially in um, teaching them the research process is to allow them to explore and understand unintended consequences right there are consequences to what you do to what you design right and they may not be obvious for years right but anticipate that and look to look ahead to how not only like your your you know your personal values matter how do you align your personal values with what it is that you're designing and so when you go to work for a company be sure that you're going to work for an organization that does align with your personal values your personal values are important they're going to direct the choices that you make and if you're making choices that don't align with your personal values, you're not going to be a very happy person. I mean, that's very simply, right? And you have to consider people. And, and you know, again, it's like, what are the, the consequences of this? And, and so, like, working with my undergraduate students this quarter has just been amazing. These are Gen Zers, which I've become increasingly interested in. They are different. And um, for really, you know, you can treat, you know, the, the reasons are there why they're so different. But um, helping them to learn how to do research that opens the window to the complexity of the world that they're dealing with and how do they then organize that complexity in a way that they can move forward and and deal with it and manage it like 
one of my teams um, decided, and you know, this is always a question when I'm, you know, like basically approving what they want to pursue as their topic. I have them working under the overall topic of the circular economy. We're beyond recycling and sustainability. We're looking at circular. And so like choose a topic under the circular economy and we study what the circular economy is and um, research that. And so I had one team um, choose medical waste. That's a mammoth problem, right? And I thought about, okay, like, all right, so how are you equipped to go in and study medical waste and just, and think about, uh, based on your research, um, how can you apply circular economy principles to that? They got through the midterm and they realized like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is gnarly. You know, this is like, we, you know, everybody we talk to, they are not going to put the health of the planet above the health of their patients. That's not going to happen. And so, you know, the, the challenge at that point was how can they find just a chink, just a little bit of light in all the research that they've done? How can they find that little chink of light and work there? How can they impact, intervene in that space and try to make things move for that move it towards a more sustainable future. You know, you made the comment, if they're equipped, which um, makes me think of one question that I'll sort of maybe wrap into to the final question here um, and to try to tie it to your book. So, you know, again, in design anthropology, we're often interested in the concept of you know, creating new methods as we go, as we tackle problems. And as we live in this, you know, as the army frames it, the VUCA, I don't know if it's VUCA, but I think it's VUCA that they describe it as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? So as we exist in that environment, and as this pace of change is increasing, um, do you think, you know, our, our tools are equipped to solve the problem? Or do you think there is a you know, an immediate and pressing need to develop new tools. And I'm going to just, re- not to give you a two-parter, but relate that to maybe the fact that you're writing a new book on this topic. You know, you've said you need to update the SCAD curriculum to incorporate technology, but is there also a need to be rethinking even the research process and how we go about understanding the problems? Well, I think we have some good models out there for understanding research. And um, there are many models, as you know. Um, I really like the Kumar, Vijay Kumar's model, uh, which has seven different modes. Um, tools, yeah, we always need tools. We need tools. But, you know, when you think about, when I think about where this starts, um, the, the tools, Wow, that's really an interesting question. We need to develop both the, this really big picture view and get that through uh, and big data. I mean, I have not had an opportunity to work with big data the way that many people have, you know, integrating that across an organization. And, you know, I don't have that experience. What I do have is... Um, the on the ground like connection with people and having the ability to look out in the world and see, you know, what's going on and listen to people and talk with them. Um, People who are actually out there trying to make their way to figure out like, how are we going to keep this organization afloat? Um, by understanding where we need to go next. And that's strategic, that's strategy. So tools to get there, gosh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much a traditional anthropologist in that sense, like way traditional, you know, where you figure out like Trisha Wang did that the best way, one of the best ways to get the information I need is to, become a street vendor or to sit in internet cafes 
right? I need to know what people are doing on a collective level. Individually, yes, but on a collective level, most importantly. And what better tool do we have than ourselves in that sense? I mean, there are many tools out there that could be helpful. But if you're not able to approach this as a Trisha Wang or, you know, a Margaret Mead or a Malinowski or, you know, I mean, we're, we're always trying to figure out how to do it better. How do we understand, you know, uh, not, yes, what is, but what could be? And how do we evaluate what could be? to get to what's good. I know I said that would pretty much be the last question, but just follow up to that. So, you know, as somebody who's now spent a lot of time in higher ed, but teaching not in an anthropology department, what would you like to see, you know, from what you're doing? How would you like to see that brought back into maybe anthropology departments? And do you see, you know, the forthcoming book playing a role there? Yeah, I definitely would like to see this brought into anthropology departments. And I think people like Elizabeth Bryody are doing amazing work in, you know, communicating that. Um, You know, anthropologists, I mean, we have an anthropology department, actually, we have liberal arts department at SCAD. And what they're doing is providing basic anthropology training, education. So, and the students come out of those classes like, wow, this is great. It's a different way of looking at the world. And so I try to pick up on that or, you know, dovetail with that um, and and um, show them, teach them, offer to them, how can you bring that experience into your work as a designer? Right? So the theories that come out. I, I don't know. They do small research problem pro- projects in the anthropology classes that they take, but they're from an anthropology perspective. And so what I have to do is bring that into design and business because they're pretty inextricable. You can't really tease them apart, at least not at SCAD. You know, training for business, uh, as much as it might have had a negative connotation in the past is increasingly the direction that anthropologists are going um, as there are so few jobs in academia. And so uh, certainly I think we all hope that that becomes more more relevant in more programs across the country and, and globe for that matter. Um, and so with that being said, I mean, I know I look forward to seeing you know the book come out. Um, do you want to maybe just say a little less about that and then we can have people and you know, let people know where they can find you? Yeah, sure. So um, with the book, um, Janessa uh, Spears and I are working on, it's an edited collection. Um, We wanted to offer an opportunity, um, multiple opportunities. One is for people who are just uh, beginning to publish, who are, you know, kind of early career people. Um, and, And then another opportunity is for people who have been in their careers for years, decades even, and offer an opportunity to reflect back somewhat like your question at the beginning. It's like, how did you get where you are, right? Um, And we're trying to figure out like, okay, what are people actually doing in practice and how are they thinking about it? And so that's the goal of the book as we ask people to define, okay, where do you position yourself in this field of design plus anthropology? Um, do you see it as design anthropology? Do you see it as design and then anthropology? Or how is it converging in your practice, in your work? Um, design is now human-centered. We're moving, you know, I'm trying to move in my work um, to planet-centered. Um, species, you know, like all species, not just humans. That didn't work very well. Being human-centered didn't work very well. It just didn't. Um, so that's what we're trying to capture in the book is we want to like, okay, where, where are you and what are you doing? How are you practicing this thing? How are you bringing different, uh, disciplinary, um, 
uh, training together? Like what methodologies are you, do you have a theoretical approach? Are you bringing theory into your approach? Are you creating theory? Like, how are you practicing? Yeah. So that's what the book is about. Very exciting. And so if anybody wanted to get more information, you know, on, on that, or just to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, they can email me at SCAD. My SCAD email is C as in cat, Z as in zebra, at SCAD, S-C-A-D dot E-D-U. Very good. And well, Christine, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about design anthropology. It's been something that I've wanted to dive a little bit deeper on uh, for a while now and haven't had the chance, so this is the perfect opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.